man, things have really gone sideways recently, haven't they? Yeah, they've Every, everything is gone. We've got election stuff going on. Yep. We've got virus stuff going on. Mask There's mandates. Mask. Oh my goodness, this everything is insane. It's been pretty rough. I think probably due for a an eschatology episode, aren't we? Yeah. So yeah. are you pre-trib, mid-trib, or post-trib? Post-mill. Oh. Yeah. That's that's a little out of there. Well, it's an option. All right. Well, let's talk about it. Let's do it. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Born to Rain. We've got an exciting one today. This is honestly probably one of our favorite topics, although we often say everything is our favorite everything topic. Everything is our favorite topic. Who doesn't love a little eschatology, some end times discussion? Everybody loves it. We, we got it coming to you hot today. Right off the press. So The ink is still wet. Very wet. The digital ink, of course. Yeah. Right? Nobody, nobody. We're in the 21st century. Ink. Come on. Only printed stuff that I print is nothing. <laughs> I don't, I don't use it. But overall, what do we got going on? We've got we've got some crazy stuff going on. Oh, I just headbutted my mic. Don't do that. Sorry it's if you heard that. Not not helpful. Or healthy, and it doesn't make your mic work better. Yeah, and I'm not even wearing a mask, so I just infected my mic. Uh, gotta sanitize it now. Yeah, elections going wild. We've got the Great Reset, the impending doom hanging over our heads. Yeah. We've got... Potential civil war. Yeah. We've got a lot of stuff going on. It's it's going crazy. These vaccines. Oh, my goodness. you got oppressive governments in America, in the Middle East, in Asia, just all over the place. Everything's going crazy. Persecution of Christians. You kind of le- leave yourself asking... Uh, what a time to be a Christian, mm-hmm. right? This is, things are looking pretty bleak, right? Yeah, um, pretty depressing. But even in that, we see some some serious glimmers of hope. Oh yeah, you have you have some uh, statistics there in front of you. What are what are you, what are you looking at for um, the the glimmers of hope that we see through? through all this stuff going on. You got persecution in Iran, but what's happening in Iran? Iran is the, it's actually the second fastest growing church in the world. Behind what? Behind China. China. So we got (laughs) communist China, you've got Iran, and they're the two fastest growing churches in the world, but they're also the most heavily persecuted churches. They're saying that um, by 2030, China will likely be a Christian nation. Mm Mm-hmm. China. Yep. China. China. <laughs> will be a Christian nation. Like, let that sink in. That's like a, that's just crazy. You've got I mean, Iran that is overwhelmingly Muslim. Mm-hmm. But the church is growing like wildfire. Yep. It's, you've got Christians being beheaded, raped, hanged, um, and yet the church is growing. Yep. You have places like Ethiopia. You had a, you had an encounter with somebody a few months ago, didn't you? That the person was like, the Muslim was like, 
I can't even move back to my home country because it's too Christian and I won't <laughs> I'll get <laughs> chased out of here. Yeah, Ethiopia's going wild, but there's a lot of, I mean, a lot of Christians in Ethiopia, a lot of them. Yeah. Actually, Africa is going to be a Christian, overwhelmingly Christian continent in around the same time as China. South America is becoming Protestant at a faster rate right now than Europe was during the Reformation. That's crazy. That's a fact. It's <laughs> a fact, Jack. So when we when we look at the world, it's it's easy to look at the news and go, "Oh man, things are things are really bleak." Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't remember who it was that said it. Um, that said that the kingdom of God goes from victory to victory, each one disguised as defeat. Yeah, and it's. Um, I, I think that that perfectly sums up the way we look at. Um, Christian history. It's when things were difficult, the most difficult, um, that we saw that we see the most growth. Um, and so when, when we get asked, okay, give me, give me your, your perspective on what, what's the next event on the prophecy calendar. Um, many people are often surprised to say, oh, well, I think things are actually getting better. And the, the gospel is actually going to continue to triumph it's going to continue to grow uh the church is going to continue to mature um and you kind of get this dead stare <laughs> like wait really are you serious <laughs> so that's kind of what we're going to talk about today we have this um reason for optimism yeah from the our study of the scriptures as we looked at some of these things even even looking at the current events yeah, and we can see these that this very bright hope mm-hmm. in our in our world. Yeah, um, our, our our prophecy update is the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. You, you look around the world, and you see the CCP is panicking. They're panicking over the Christians. Yeah, early the the members of early reign covenant church, <coughs> reform by the way. Uh, are getting arrested, singing hymns in prison, and walking out and taking selfies and laughing about it. <laughs> it cracks me up the the uh, Chinese um, concentration camps where they've got like all these they're they're stacking up all these Christians that they're inadvertently making mega churches. <laughs> <laughs> like yeah. the, what did you expect? They've clearly the Communist Party has never read the New Testament, specifically the book of Acts, to mm-hmm. go, you do know what happens when you throw Christians in jail, right? Right. They have church services. They, <laughs> they, they sing, and uh, and things grow. Things happen. Earth-shattering things happen, mm-hmm. literally. Yeah. I, uh, I think what we're seeing is, I think we're seeing the gospel is spreading, and I think we're seeing governments panic. Yeah. I think the CCP is panicking. I think Afghanistan's government is panicking. I think Iran's government is panicking. Ethiopia has a weird thing going on, but like uh, the update is what's happening right now is saints are being persecuted. We are about to go into persecution and what's going to come out of that is victory. Yeah. That that's, that's really the update. And that's in complete coherence with what Paul says. Paul says in Philippians one, he says he's writing a letter from jail. He says from jail. Yeah. He says, (laughs) now I want you to know brothers that my circumstances have actually served to advance the gospel. 
As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And most of the brothers, confident in the Lord by my chains, now dare more greatly to speak the Lord without fear. So pretty much Paul is writing from from jail and he's giving a report to the church. And he's like, things are going great, guys. I'm in jail. I got him on the run. <laughs> we have him right where we want him. Yeah. That's the, We're surrounded. Um, we have him right where we want him. Like that's the... I. I I don't think Paul could say that if he didn't have the hope of prophecy undergirding what he knew was going to happen. Well, and I think if we look at, obviously this is scripture, and every every believer looks at this and goes, yes, absolutely. We, we know that persecution um, builds our faith, um, builds our strength. Um, but I think the, the big question that, that centers around the, the debate, the the question of where is history going is to what extent does the building of our faith affect the world around us? Mm-hmm. Um, and is it actually, uh, where are we actually going? Are we climbing a mountain or are we, you know, sliding down into a valley? Where, where is, where is history going? How is, how is it trending? Who actually has the power yeah. Who, who's who's getting the upper hand? Who's getting the victory? Do we have them on the run in real life, or is this just wishful thinking? Yeah. Um, and I think there's there is a significant reason for optimism when you look through Scripture and see how God set the trajectory of the world. When you look at pagan eschatology, the pagan eschatology looks at the world and just says it's a cycle this these things come and go they come and go they come and go all the time and and nothing is supposed to happen um this is just the way life is and empires rise and fall um you know people come and go ideologies come and go sometimes it gets rehashed and all that uh, but ultimately it's a it's a net zero of, of what's going on things aren't getting better things aren't getting worse so what throw up your hands but the the distinctly christian view of the world is that we're going somewhere where whether you're optimistic about the future whether you're pessimistic about the future we know that god wrote history in a line it's not going in in circles it's going to an an ultimate end and so then our question is what ultimate end what does that ultimate end look like and so then if we go to scripture and do a quick track through biblical history, what what do we see? We see historical optimism, but and that's important to say historical optimism instead of just optimism. Yeah, you can, you can talk to anybody, any Christian, and they're going to be like, "Well, I'm optimistic." Yeah, I know Jesus wins. I'm optimistic. In the end, we're going to Jesus can come back and yeah. blow everybody up with a giant bazooka. Like that's everybody knows that Jesus wins. That, that's that, it. That, that's what it means to be Christian. But there's a certain type of optimism that we hold to. And it's historic optimism. It's regenerative optimism. I'm optimistic in the Holy Spirit's ability to regenerate, renew, bring more people to salvation. I'm gospel central centrality optimistic. Yeah. I'm optimistic in the ability of the church to march through history unabashed and win. So historical optimism, there's only one view that holds that. There's op- other optimism where Jesus could come back at any moment. And yes, that would be very awesome, but that's not the type of optimism that we believe prophecy teaches us. Yeah. Right. Because 
and and that's that's an important note as well uh, and we'll kind of touch on that in a, a little bit but um that we do believe that jesus is coming back the, you know mm-hmm. jesus has the victory he will return to this earth um the debate is around what the condition of the earth is when he returns mm-hmm. and what the manner of his return will be yeah um and so if we track it all the way back to the beginning we we kind of discussed this in the uh um our covenant theology episode. Um, but the, the giving of the first gospel, the proto evangelium Genesis three fifteen, where God tells the woman, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, or he tells the serpent, I will, t- I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. There's the gospel. Mm-hmm. We've got, we've got, there's a, there's somebody coming who's going to crush the head of this serpent. This guy comes into the story to deceive mankind, but somebody's going to come and someone's going to kill this dragon. Right. We look in hope, in faith, to that. Mm-hmm. And um, when you look at what happens there, um, uh, God sacrifices an animal and covers their nakedness, covers the man and the woman in, in their nakedness, and uh, gives that gives them the earth. Still, they're still commanded to go, be fruitful, multiply. They're supposed to go um, teach their children that there's a serpent crusher coming, mm-hmm. and all of the the thorns and the thistles, the pain and childbearing is uh, there, there's a serpent crusher who's coming to to fix this mm-hmm. he, he's coming and so that's that's the first th- there's the first planting of the church right the, the, the church is there present in genesis 3 mm-hmm. god is going to build that church from those two people and then you you track through uh through genesis you see the the references of the sons of god versus the the daughters of men um that those who followed the Lord, those who submitted to the, the word of the Lord, um, were the faithful and were called the sons of God. Those that were became pagans, even early on, were then considered um, the, 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 the daughters of men. You know, who, we, we now have two people groups. Those who are for God, those who are against God. The godly line um, and the not godly yeah. line. So now we have clear, clear distinctions drawn between these people um, and it doesn't take long for that the effect of that sinful man to just send everything off the rails right his own kid murders his other son yeah yeah that's tragic um, and then you have um, murder rape plunder all the way through to Genesis oh. 5 and 6 where now God says I regret that I even made man I'm going to wipe them off the face of the earth. Boom. But I will preserve a remnant. Mm-hmm. He pulls one righteous man and his family and, and preserves them. And out of, the, out of the destruction, after the judgment on the wicked, God tells them, go, be fruitful and multiply. It's the same command that was given to Adam and Eve in the garden. He says, go, be fruitful and multiply. Go, go get him, tiger. <laughs> yeah. Um, How gracious that he doesn't take it away. Exactly. Um, then, we, then we come to Genesis 11 with the Tower of Babel. Yep. And that's kind of like a 
I mean, that's a super important uh, landmarker in the his, the sinful history of mankind. Massive, yes. And they come together and they try to build this one world government, this one world uh, coalition to reach up to God. And that's not godly, first of all. Right. One world governments aren't godly. God, Globalism doesn't work. Globalism is not godly and it doesn't work. And God comes down and s- says, nope, not happening. So he scatters them all, makes them speak different languages and uh, changes everything. Yeah. And then in, in Abraham, he promises to essentially reverse that. Yeah. Well, and I always say um, the story of the Bible is God putting things in order. He, he's putting things where they belong. Um, and really the, the most distinct strange moment that we have of God seemingly not following that pattern is the tower of Babel. Um, it's like, Oh, God's kind of a, that seems kind of, uh, chaotic for him to add all of these languages and create all this massive confusion. Yeah. But exactly what you're saying is that this globalistic mindset, this one world government, this build a, build a tower to the sky. We can become gods ourselves. Um, is what God was saying was disorderly. And so he said, go fill the earth, and they didn't. And so his dividing of the languages, dividing of the people groups, was him forcing people to go into every corner of the world to take that dominion that he commanded them to take. Mm-hmm. Um, and so e- even there, it looks like God is causing chaos. And yet, in some ways, I almost look at it like he's stacking the deck against himself Mm -hmm. he's like look we're gonna spread the people all the way across the planet they're gonna have all these different religious beliefs views about the world they're going to speak different languages they're going to um just be wicked people in general what are we gonna what are we gonna do with this we're spreading this out he promised to the woman that there would be a serpent crusher and then he spreads everybody out and and puts them in their own little boxes if you will stacks the deck against himself and then comes to this man named Abram and says, go to a land where I will show you and I'm going to bring you descendants and through your seed, all nations on earth will be blessed. Mm -hmm. There you have another giving of the gospel. That's a distinctly messianic prophecy, right? Um, We're, we're going to send, I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to give you uh, offspring and you're going to bless the nations. And it's a, it's a beautiful thing um, of God calling his own people out of, out of the paganism, out of the wickedness, and giving them life and a promise and a hope and covenanting with them. He didn't have to. And he chooses an old man with his old wife and with, with no children. And he says, from you, I'm going to bless the world. Yeah. That, and that's that's the character of God. He's the initiator. He's the driving force behind all of it. And when you contrast the plan of Christ with the plan of the Tower of Babel, what I think you, you really get to see is, ju- is faith versus works. Yeah. The Tower of Babel was a works righteousness, man-made plan of salvation. And it's very interesting how the how they were 
uniting together in one language as one people and tried to build a tower up to heaven to reach heaven because it's in man's very image, it's in his very being to want to unite heaven and earth. But they're trying to do it of their own accord, in their own way, by their own plan. Jesus comes, and Paul says in Ephesians 1, he came to unite heaven and earth. Jesus came to build that tower when Jacob has that vision and there's a ladder that's connecting heaven and earth. Jesus is that ladder. Mm -hmm. But Jesus is the only one who can do that. He's the only one who can unite the the nations in one language in himself and connect heaven and earth. When we try to do that, uh, not only does it not work, but God's God judges and he says, okay, to hell with all you guys yeah. and just scatters them. Well, and look then at what happened to Abraham when he tried to take things into his own hands. Oh yeah. That he, he looks at, uh, God's promise and goes, well, he didn't say explicitly that it had to come from Sarah. So I can bring it, <laughs> we can bring a concubine in here. And I can, we can fulfill God's promise. We can fulfill God's promise. That's the worst way to say that. (laughs) We can Mm -hmm. fulfill God's promise through this loophole. And if we know anything today, when we're talking about the oppressive governments, um, the the product of that um, decision produces the Iranian government. In, I would almost say directly relatively indirectly but that that people that ideology comes directly from Ishmael and that decision to not trust God's promise um, and so again did God know that that was going to happen was that part of his plan was it out of his control God's stacking the deck against himself again even with his faithful Abraham he's going look your mistakes aren't going to undo my plan mm-hmm Ishmael and his people are going to be a thorn in the side of the promised seed, but I've still got a plan and you haven't wrecked, you haven't wrecked it yet. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so when, when, um, uh, Isaac is born, it's the most out there thing, um, that, that you can imagine, but this is all God, uh, setting setting up the stage for his kingdom now you have um, abraham's descendants go into egypt we're going to fast forward about yeah 500 years mm-hmm. <laughs> Re- really really quickly they go into egypt <laughs> they get um they get enslaved god sends a deliverer to them he sends moses this one man to come into Egypt and to call out his people, to make them a holy nation set apart, to bring them to that land of promise that he promised to Abraham. Moses wasn't the smartest, wasn't the most eloquent of speech, and he was the first to tell God that. Um, And yet God used him, and the scriptures tell us that Moses was the, the humblest man to ever walk the planet which would have been strange as Moses to write that. but um, <laughs> Moses is like, believe me, I'm so humble. You don't even know how humble I am. <laughs> <laughs> but you have a very clear type of Christ that he's come to set his people free um, from, from the bondage of the world. 
uh, and lead them into life and um, godliness and uh, freedom. And then Moses fails again. The people fail again in, in the wilderness, and God judges them. You see this, like, uh, these, this wrestling of God, God versus man, and knowing that God is sovereign over all of it, and yet he's always redeeming these things. The, the history is never out of his control. He knew it was going to happen. He set, he set himself up for success in this. The people fail. They have to wander the wilderness for 40 years. And then he raises up this guy, Joshua. And Joshua is the, um, the giant killer. Mm-hmm. We always call David the giant killer. We'll get to David. Yep. But Joshua's the real giant killer. Yeah. Because he goes into the, the land with the 12 spies. And what were, you were saying, you were talking about it before, um, uh, before we started recording. Um, Joshua, they go in and they spy out the land. And 10 of the spies come back saying, there's giants in the land. And what did Joshua tell them? He's like, don't worry about it. <laughs> I got, I got this. <laughs> Joshua's Joshua was the fearless leader and he's, uh, the type, he's a type of Jesus Christ. And all through, all throughout from Abraham to David, the promised land is pointing towards something. Mm-hmm. It's still pointing towards what the proto evangelium was about. Right. And it's about Jesus. Yep. And, and what is Jesus? What, what, what's the land the the tiny little piece of land that is Israel that they were given, what is that pointing towards the whole world? Yeah. And now you have Joshua going into the land and it's no coincidence. When we talk about types of Christ, I think Joshua gets uh, overlooked as maybe the most clear type of Christ in the old Testament. Mm -hmm. Um, Definitely. And he's, they share a name, <laughs> right? Jesus comes in. His his name is Joshua. His name should have just. We should just translate it Jesus, so yeah. that everybody knows. We know it's Yeshua. We we fairly regularly forget that Joshua is Jesus. Jesus' name is Joshua. And so the the links there when you look at Joshua conquering Canaan, going mm-hmm. in taking this place. He said, this is the land that God promised us. We are taking it over. This is ours. Um, These are all foreshadowings of the coming Christ who's already been promised. Yep. He's coming to rule the world. Mm -hmm. He's coming to rule his people, to deliver his people. He's coming to conquer this world. And there is nothing more, more clear of the, the spiritual victory of Christ and his people in the world than Joshua and the physical conquering of Canaan. Yep. When they go into Canaan, um, Joshua doesn't fear the giants. Mm -hmm. You, you likened the, the giants of our day to these, uh, world governments, these, um, the woke church, the, um, vaccines, the, all these things that have set themselves up, you know, when the New Testament says we, we battle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. Um, these are the giants in our land. Right. We're called to fight them and slay them. So, so what are we, how are we going to react? Are we going to come back like those cowards and say these giants are too big? There's nothing we can do? Or are we going to 
trust in our Joshua to lead us into battle and to lead us to victory. Ooh, our Joshua. I like that. Yeah. That's good stuff. Yeah. Yeah, but I think a lot of the times we, we want to say we can conquer these giants, but we're not willing to fall into line the way that Jesus wants us to fall into line to, right. to conquer the giants. Because what happens, you go in and you, the first victory in the promised land, Joshua topples Jericho. He leads the people to topple Jericho. And immediately somebody breaks God's command, takes the takes the articles of the world. I love that um, in the King James Version, it calls the, the cloth that Achan takes a Babylonish, uh, a Babylonish um, cloth. And if uh, there's nothing more pure symbolism throughout the Old Testament of the world and its systems and anti, anti-Christian, anti-God um, system mm-hmm. of Babylon. Starting from Tower of Babel into Babylon, the empire, and going in to Jericho, Achan takes this Babylonish cloth. He yeah. wanted to be like the world while sharing in the victories of Christ. Um, and God had to God had to purify his people of that that sin. And so there's um, there there's yet another type of how this church is. When we let the worldliness seep into the the church, we've got problems, and it has to be dealt with. You can't just turn a blind eye to it and expect God to continue to bless it. Right. Um, but the people then conquer. I love the book of Joshua ends with, um, and and all that God promised them came to pass. He yeah. gave them the entire land. Mm-hmm. They went in, they took it, they fulfilled it. Um, it was theirs. Not one promise was. Not nothing. Nothing that the Lord had promised failed. Mm-hmm. It's one of the best verses in the Bible that you rarely hear. Yeah. Um, but now. You come to Judges. Mm-hmm. And the theme of Judges, at seven times in the book of Judges, you hear, there was no king in Israel, and every man did what was right in their own eyes. And now you have this guy come along, David, known as the man after God's own heart. Mm-hmm. And he drives out the wickedness that seeped back into the people he establishes himself as a good king, as a righteous king over Israel. And he's a songwriter. And he wrote some pretty good songs. Oh, yeah. <laughs> songs were awesome. It's the um, best hymnal to date. To date. Yeah. Um, but he, now looking at this wicked people who have compromised their faith, who are a- allowing the enemy to inhabit their land, um, he now has to deal with um, he has to deal with these things um, and in his writings he points forward to somebody else yeah to a new coming person because he was promised something he knew that there was something coming up yeah he believed the promise that God made to Adam and Eve he believed the promise that was made to Noah. He believed the promise that was made to Abraham, to Moses, to Joshua. He believed those things, and he looked forward, and he said, here here it comes. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's my son. He's David's son. Yeah. So Jesus says he's going to be your son, and he's always going to sit on your throne forever. Yep. That, that this is the line, the line out of Judah, that there would be somebody coming. 
mm-hmm. descendant of David, and and there would be somebody to come that would the the scepter. Uh, Jacob promised to his uh, son Judah and said, "The scepter will not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes." Yeah, who is Christ? Yep. So Peace. you have this. So you have this this promise that there's somebody coming who's going to be the ruler. Joseph was not talking about, um, or Jacob was not talking about um, David. Mm-hmm. He was looking farther. Yep. Now we have. Should we look at a couple psalms here? Let's do it. Because this is where we really get into the prophecies. Well, we've gone through the main characters, but yep. David, in his book of Psalms, he prophesies about his coming son who was going to sit on his throne. And that's a that's where we really start to get in and get more information on what this son is going to do, what his reign is going to be like, how he's going to come, what he's, what's he going to be like. Uh, in the prophets, the major, the minor prophets, they also give us a lot of information. So, so thus far, we've talked about the characters. We've talked about what they were pointing towards, what they were doing, what they knew they were looking forward to. The book of Hebrews says that Abraham dwelled in the land of promise as a stranger because he was looking forward to the day of Jesus. And that's why Jesus says, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it. Yeah. So when we get into the Psalms, Isaiah, uh, Jeremiah, Habakkuk, Zechariah, Daniel, all these, we start to get a very clear picture of Jesus. Jesus pops out from every page. This is why Paul writes to Timothy, and uh, is it 2 Timothy or 1 Timothy 3.16? I think it's 2nd. Well, he writes to Timothy and says, hey, all scripture is God-breathed, and profitable to equip every man for every good work. Well, Timothy didn't have the New Testament sitting in front of him. He was in the New Testament. Yeah. So he's, Paul is referencing the Old Testament, and he's telling Timothy that that was sufficient to equip a man for the new covenant work of Jesus Christ. Right. So a lot of people may be listening, and they're like, wait, you said at the beginning you were going to be talking eschatology, and thus far you've spent the entire time in the Old Testament. <laughs> hey, that's a that's a good, a really good observation, and I think that's super important to address. Yeah, like if you, I think that the historically optimistic eschat- optimistic eschatology rests on the presupposition that the Old Testament is in fact scripture. Right, and and we love our types and shadows. Yes, we we see those things being set up. Um, you know, the book of Hebrews pointing back to the tabernacle that, that God established with his people and says, look, this was all pointing to Christ. This was, this was setting this up. Right. It, it's all a picture. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's coming, f- it, it, it's all driving towards something. Yeah. Now. So we're not making up this, this type and sacrifice, the, um, these types and shadows thing. Right. That's how the apostles interpreted the, the Old, Old Testament. Testament. Yep. Which is important when we look at David and his writings. If we read uh, Psalm 2, which is one of our favorites as we start to look toward. Oh, for sure. And I would, I would also... Throw my phone on the ground. Yeah, you, you, knocked just, your, you knocked your head earlier. Now no. I'm just throwing my phone on the ground. We're getting too excited. But I would, I would tell the <laughs> listeners, if you want to know more about that hermeneutic, just the way that, we, the, way that the, the, the apostles teach us to read the Old Testament and to apply it to our lives... I would go back and listen to the gospel in the Old Testament featuring yeah. 
the Reverend uh, Pastor Ben Zorns yep. from Christ Church in Moscow, Idaho. He wrote a book. It's just go listen to it. I'll stop yep. talking about it. Buy it on Amazon. It's only five bucks. Yeah. It's really good. So Psalm 2. And this is where we'll kind of start to bridge the gap between Old Testament, New Testament, start, start, start to see where these things uh, mm-hmm. come, into, come into play. Psalm 2 says, Why do the heathen nations rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. I love that. God, God laughs. You know who God's laughing at right now? CCP, Great Reset, all these horrible people that we have on the earth. God's laughing at them. America. Yeah, us, <laughs> yeah. Um, he holds them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree of the Lord has said to me, Thou art my son, this day I have begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and for the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron, thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings, be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling." Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and ye perish from the way, when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. Mm. Such Oof. a good psalm. That's so good. Yeah, that reminds me of that hymn. Sit thou at my right hand. <laughs> oh, wait. That is that psalm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you have um, the, the worldly nations set themselves up against God and against his Christ. And we're told in Acts 2 um, that this was talking about Christ. You can read that and go, oh, wow, what, what's this talking about? This sounds pretty good. God delivering his people. Right, right. God um, raising up his anointed. You read this without any context. You go, is David talking about himself? Because mm-hmm. God was delivering David. But then you get to the New Testament and you have Peter getting up on the day of Pentecost and references this psalm. Mm-hmm. And says, this is what's happening to you today. Right. Um, he, he links um, the, the kings of the earth plotting a vain thing and links it to Herod and, um, uh, Herod and Pontius Pilate yep. plotting to kill Jesus. And the Lord laughed at them. The Lord laughed at them. And how did he laugh at them? He let them do it. And then he raised his son from the dead. Yes. He said, joke's on you. I promised that there would be a serpent crusher. And you, in your hate of that serpent crusher, fulfilled my plan. Yeah. And the Apostle Paul continues expositing Psalm 2. And he says, God has fulfilled this for us, their children, and that he has raised up Jesus, as, is, as it is also written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So we read, today I have begotten you, and we're just like, so what? You gave birth? What, what are you talking about? Like, who's this? Paul reads that and says, that's talking about the resurrection. He, yeah, God, God promised that. And so what is, what is the Christ reward? We know we talked, if you haven't listened to that one, go back and listen to the covenant theology episode where we discuss what the covenant of redemption is that God covenanted with the son, um, to give him an inheritance. He had to die. He had to suffer and pay the, pay the price for sin. Um, but 
he was going to get a reward. And it says here, today you're my son. I've begotten you. Resurrection. Um, Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Mm -hmm. The whole world belongs to Christ. Colossians tells us um, that all things were created by him and for him. God created this world to give to Jesus as a gift. This is, this is, it all belongs to Christ. It's all his. It belongs to him. Right. And that's, that's the way it goes. That's how it is. I mean, that's just so important to grasp. And I just get amazed every single time. But Jesus purchased the nations. Like the, he, they owe him their reverence. After he was resurrected, they were given to him. They belong to him. And any nation that's not submitting to him is in rebellion. Well, I think if you look, just, just look at America today. We've long said that America is a Christian nation, right? And what has happened over the last, shall we say, 100 years, as we've really started to quickly abandon that Christian, that Judeo-Christian ethic, specifically in the last 50 years. Mm-hmm. You know, you have the, the hippie movement in the, the 60s, 70s, sexual revolution, all that, our, our slide into liberalism, paganism, wokeness. Um, oh, stop, I'm going to puke. We, we're, we're left with, we're, we're in this place now where we are, we, we failed to kiss the sun. Yeah. And we're perishing along the way. Mm-hmm. So I don't think it's too late, but we're, we, we better submit to that son before he breaks us with a rod of iron. Yeah. I, I would say a good way to, a good theme to look at, to understand what position we're in was when God told Moses, you know what? I'm done. I'm destroying everybody. I'm starting over with you. Remember that? Yeah. And Moses is like, wait, no, wait, hold on. You promised. <laughs> well, Moses was pointing towards Jesus. He was, a, he was a type of Jesus. So Jesus, God's not happy with us right now. No. God right now is saying, I'm just going to wipe them out and I'm just going to start over. Yeah. But Jesus, who always lives to make intercession for us, is as our high priest, is we just need to petition him to intercede for us because yeah. we have messed up yeah. big time. Big, big time. <laughs> uh, and so, but part of that promise that was given to Christ um, is there in Psalm 110. Yes. Oh, yes. Um, which is God's favorite Bible verse. Yes. The Holy Spirit's. Psalm 110.1, for those who don't know, is the most quoted verse from the Old Testament in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. It's quoted, if, if I remember correctly, it's 13 times hmm. that it's quoted um, in the New Testament, either directly or alluded to right. um, in there. You know, it said, Psalm 110.1 says, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Yes. This is David writing. Jesus uses this. Jesus alludes to this and says that it's talking about him. So we know, okay, this is talking about Okay, it's Christ. talking about Jesus. Um, th- that's a very clear interpretation because mm-hmm. Jesus tells us that. <laughs> it's like, ooh, thank you, Jesus. No, no hard exegesis there. Yeah, <laughs> made that one easy. Um, but he a- it's Jesus that asks the Pharisees. They, they ask him, um, by what authority do you do these things? 
on earth. You do these miracles. You give these teachings. By what authority do you do this? And he goes, let me ask you a question. David said that his son, he called his own son, his own descendant, Lord. How is that possible if he's his descendant? Because the previous king is always greater than the successing king. Mm-hmm. So when, when David says, this guy's my Lord, and he's yet my descendant, how does, how, does, how does he say that? How does that work? And the Pharisees go, no, we don't know. <laughs> and Jesus says, neither tell you I by what authority I do these things. But you look at that passage and go, Jesus is winking at them, going, um, just go back and read that verse and see what he's talking about. By what mm-hmm. authority? The Lord... God Almighty said unto my Lord, Christ the Son, sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Yeah. That's God giving the Son authority to rule over the nations. Yep. Ask of me and I'll give you the nations for your inheritance. Sit at my right hand until I make it happen. Boom. So <laughs> so they're like, by what authority? And he's basically saying, first of all, I'm God. <laughs> Second of all, in what way am I David's son? Meaning... Yeah. I'm God, and I have right to David's throne. I'm the son of David. Yeah. Like, just a double whammy of authority. So, obviously, they were like, I don't know. That's what I would have said. I would have just started running. Jesus is literally taking them to school. He's saying, yeah. you, guys, you guys know the scriptures. Why didn't you um, go listen? Go, go do your homework again. Read that whole psalm. The Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou at that, my right hand, until I make thine enemies thy footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. There's where his authority comes from. God mm-hmm. is giving the scepter to Christ and saying, rule. This is yours. The, the people are yours. So does, I guess the next question, the important question is, when did, did that happen? Yes. And, and Hebrews chapter 10 makes it very clear because Hebrews chapter 10 also quotes this verse. Yep. And it says... In the passage above, he, this is a, I'm reading Hebrews. It just sounds like a sermon because it is. In the passage above, he says, Sacrifice and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor did you delight in them, although they are offered according to the law. Then he adds, Here I am. I have come to do your will. He takes away the first to establish a second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So he's, he's expositing the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and why he came to do it. And then he says, but when this priest, Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Since Sounds that, familiar? And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made a footstool for his feet. Because by a single offering, he has made perfect for all time those who are being sanctified. So this is... Um, sorry, I just got sidetracked by a little word. Um, anyways, but he's he's confirming that after he had offered the sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. That's when God said, hey, uh, sit down at my right hand and rule in the midst of your enemies. When did he sit down at his right hand? How do we know that's already happened? Well, the book of Hebrews says he did it after he made sacrifice for sins. Ooh. And what what is um, the rest of Psalm 110 um gets down to verse four and says, the Lord has sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus is said to be our high priest in Hebrews. Mm-hmm. Um, the priest who ever lives to intercede. So Jesus, God, the father is giving 
the nations to Christ. And Christ sits at the Father's right hand and intercedes on behalf of his people yep. all the time, 24-7, 365, um, and judges the nations when they fail to keep his word. Mm-hmm. This is this is the the inheritance that that Christ was given. Right. It's it's amazing that David David saw this, writes this song, and um, we we gloss over it. We we almost take it for granted. Uh, but when you really look at this and go, wow. So to the listener, I would encourage go track down all of these references of Psalm one ten, um, one ten one, in the New Testament, and see see what it says about. Uh, Christ's ministry. Yeah. Um, it is absolutely mind blowing. Right. What, what Christ um, fulfills in, in just this verse. Right. We, we love talking about messianic prophecies, especially around Christmas time. Um, mm-hmm. Speaking of which, let's flip over to Isaiah nine. Yes. Before we do that, <laughs> I just got to make one more comment on Psalm one ten. Yeah. That is very important for understanding Isaiah nine. Go. So, in uh, the the prophecy in Second Samuel seven twelve through fourteen, God says to David, "I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come after come from your body. I will establish his kingdom, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever." So He's promising David somebody's going to sit on his throne forever. Yep. And David knows that that's Jesus. Yep. Most people agree that that's Jesus. If you're a Christian, well. What's important to grasp with Psalm 110 is that when the Lord said to our Lord, sit thou at my right hand, the throne on which he sat was the throne of David. Yes. How do we know that? Well, Peter says in, a, in Acts 2, 30, verse 31, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit, that, that of, the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ. So Acts takes uh, David's covenant that Christ was going to sit on his throne. Who's the he? David. David. And he says he spoke concerning the resurrection. Well, with other biblical data, knowing that what that what happened after the resurrection, he sat at the right hand of God. Peter is saying that the that David's throne is the throne that. Why are you laughing so hard? <laughs> I've got literal chills. Like, really? This is just so cool. Yeah. Love so, it. P- we P- weren't joking when we said this is our favorite. So. Yeah, it really is. <laughs> Peter is saying that when Jesus rose from, a- after his resurrection, he sat on the throne of David. That's what Peter is saying. If you ask, if you ask Peter, when did the prophecy that David's son was going to sit on his throne come true? David's going to say the resurrection. The author yep. of Hebrews is going to say the resurrection. Psalm 110 is speaking of David's throne. Mm-hmm. So, so that brings a, us then to Isaiah nine. Um, this is a very familiar Christmas passage. Yeah, it's the best. Um, but it's a very um, optimistic messianic post mill packet passage as well. It says. Isaiah 9, verse 1, Nevertheless, dimness shall not be such as was in her vexation, when at the first he lightly afflicted the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward did more grievously afflict her by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan in Galilee of the nations. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them the light hath shined. 
um, you can link yourself very closely to um, John's writings where it, it compares to uh, Christ as the light of the world. He's come in as the light of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, the men love darkness rather than light, all that. Um, verse four, for thou hast broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. For every battle of the warrior is with confused noise and the garments rolled out in blood, but this shall be with the burning and the fuel of fire. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So now we have another illusion there, a illusion, it's with an A, <laughs> um, to the, the throne of David, mm-hmm. to Psalm 2 of um, the promised inheritance he sits on the he sits on the throne, um, and he's told um, of the increase of his government, his dominion, his authority, is said to have no end. And w- what is Jesus, the ruler of the world? <laughs> and it, it's where it says um, he establishes it with judgment and justice from henceforth forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Yep. Remember Psalm 2 that God says, um, go, um, or uh, today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I will, gi- I will give you the, the nations. nations for your inheritance. Yeah. God says, I give this to you. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. This is God making a promise to the son. Yeah. Now, how do you respond to this? Uh-oh. We have the CCP, Iran. We have wicked, corrupt government all across the world. You have murder, rape, plunder, um, riots in the streets, um, government overreach, all of that. Mm -hmm. Um, How can you say that of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end? If this is a, a messianic prophecy, how are things so bad now? doesn't look like peace has increased now. Well, at the risk of getting ahead of ourselves on <laughs> when we're going to speak of earlier, and I'm just going to say it now. Um, my dad always told me growing up, and I just love this saying, and sometimes when I'm feeling down about stuff or whatever, this, this, this will just pop in my head. My dad always says, our God is in the business of resurrection. Ooh. He's not in the business of doing things that seem possible. Bang. The only thing more drastic than having an 85-year-old woman have a child with Abraham and Sarah is having a virgin have a child. Mm. The only thing more... I mean, what's more drastic than having somebody be swallowed by a whale and be in there for three days and then be spit out, dying, and then being raised to life? Yeah. God is an artist, and he loves to bring beauty from ashes. So my response to that, all that stuff, all that negative stuff is that we are ripe for resurrection. Yeah. That this is exactly where Jesus, where God wants us to be. Yeah. It's beautiful. 
And if I may add, uh, Calvin commenting on, on Isaiah chapter nine, uh, says, though the kingdom of Christ is in such a condition that it appears as if it were about to perish at any moment, yet God not only protects and defends it, but also extends its boundaries far and wide and then preserves and carries it forward in uninterrupted, uninterrupted progression to eternity. We ought firmly to believe this, that the frequency of those shocks by which the church is shaken may not weaken our faith. When we learn that amidst the mad outcry and violent attacks of enemies, the kingdom of Christ stands firm through the invincible power of God, so that though the whole world should oppose and resist, it will remain through all ages. We must not judge of the church's stability from the present appearance of things, but we should judge from the promise, which assures us of its continuance and of its constant increase. Mm. Calvin with the heat. I know. <laughs> so we, we cannot judge the future of the church based off present circumstances. We have to judge the future of the church based off the promises of God. We don't, we don't interpret scripture through the lens of headlines. Right. We don't, we don't scroll through our Facebook and go, Ooh, world's world's, uh, Jesus isn't doing a very good job. Yeah. Um, we're not doing a very good job, but yeah, we're, <laughs> we're not, um, <laughs> And how many times did we, um, I don't know about you, but prior to holding this historic optimism, um, how many times would did you find yourself saying, um, if this is the kingdom of Christ, I don't want to be a Christian? Lots of times. <laughs> if this is the kingdom of Christ, it kind of sucks. Mm-hmm. Um, now, let me ask you. Your wife is about to have a baby. For sure. Would you rather her be pregnant now or 500 years ago? Now. Now. 100% now. If you have a cavity, would you rather have a cavity in your tooth now or 1,000 years ago? Now. Right now. (laughs) No no hesitation there. The fact that we're listening to these podcasts on 100, maybe $1,000 smartphones, uh, driving multi-thousand dollar cars, um, and going to jobs that pay us thousands of dollars so that we can own our houses, um, go to school, all these things, there has never been a better time to be alive no than joke. today. Yep. Despite turmoil, despite difficulty, for all classes of people. Life is better today. Life is better today than it has ever been mm-hmm. on the on the planet. Yeah. So let me, can I ask you a question? Yeah. I think this will lead us into our next Isaiah chapter two. But also all these verses are good and well, but what do you say to the person that says, I don't see how you're, how you're saying that this means that evangelism is going to win. How, how does this mean that, that the world is going to be Christianized? Well, like where does it say that, that, that we should be historically optimistic in terms of the church's mission to baptize the nations. Yeah. Um, Isaiah chapter two says, um, and it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord, uh, the mountain, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow unto it. We talked about this in our Sabbath episode. Zechariah 14 also alludes to the, um, the nations streaming up to Jerusalem uh, to, to celebrate and, and feast um, in, in the Mount of Zion. Um, and now 
you want to talk about New Testament interpreting Old Testament, let's go back to Hebrews. Okay. Um, Hebrews, one um, page over. So are you going to be answering the question, what if somebody says, like, what mountain are you talking about? Yeah. Nations are going to stream to a mountain? Yeah. What are you talking about? (laughs) The church is just a big, long hiking trip. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Let me see. Uh, Hebrews um, twelve eighteen, yeah. Let's go back to seventeen. For you know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. Um, for you are not come unto the mount that might be touched, that burned with fire, nor unto blackness and darkness and tempest. So, it's already we're already told it's not an actual mountain, right? Um, and the sound of a trumpet. And the sound of the trumpet and the voice of words, which voice they had, they that heard that. Oh my goodness! Sorry. And the sound you try to read KJV. (laughs) And the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, which voice that they heard entreated that the word should not be spoken to them any more, for they could not endure that which was commanded. And if so much as a beast touched the mountains, it shall be stoned or thrust with a dart. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. So look back at Israel. When Moses was on the mountain meeting with God, the people were not allowed to go to the mountain. They were afraid to touch the mountain. Yeah. And Moses, it was real Moses, physical. Moses was afraid to go on the mountain. Right. It, it was burning with fire. It, it brought him to tears. You're, you're scared to go to the mountain. But, Hebrews twelve twenty two. But you are come unto Mount Zion and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general and assembly and the church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. Mm -hmm. See that ye refuse him that speaketh, for he, for if they escaped not who refused him that spake on earth, much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth. But now he hath promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not the, her- the earth, but also heaven. And this word, yet once more, signifieth the removing of those things that are shaken, as of the things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken will remain. Wherefore, we're, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. Mm-hmm. Oof. Literal chills. More chills. Ah! <laughs> so, so the point is, Isaiah 2 says that the nations are going to come and stream to the mountain. What mountain? Well, Hebrews 12 just told us, that mountain is the church, yep. the heavenly Jerusalem. You're coming to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. So what is Isaiah 2 telling us? It's telling us that the world is going to come to the church and come under the wings of Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. Yep. And we're told in Habakkuk 2, um, as well as Isaiah, that the earth, one in the, in the time of Messiah, the earth will be covered with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. 
Yep. So we're told these things will happen. The nations are coming in. They're, they're, they're flowing up to Mount Zion. The whole world will know. Um, we're, we're given this promise. Um, and that's where I think when we get to Jesus and his resurrection, um, at his ascension, when he, when he, right before he ascends, he tells his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Mm-hmm. So he's given them um, this command to go into all the world. Why do we know that? Well, why do we think that we have optimism there? Well, God says that he was going to give the nations. So Jesus says, I died and I rose again, therefore go. I have yeah. all authority, therefore go. Mm-hmm. Um, we're, we're given this promise. Um, and now we're told um, in Hebrews that God is shaking these things. Mm-hmm. Where we talked about earlier that the, um, the, da- the God stacked the deck against him. And now um, it's, time, it's time to play the game. Yeah. And Jesus is sending his people out. He says, go, go get them. Mm-hmm. Th- this, is, this is what it was all building towards. From uh, Adam and Eve in the garden to Abraham, to Noah, uh, well, to Noah, to Abraham, to Moses, to Joshua, to David, um, through the prophets, it's here. Every, everything is here. Go get it. Right. It's all mine now. And Go. you're not being sent on a suicide mission. Yeah. You're not being sent, well, maybe a suicide mission, but you're not, you're not being sent on a failing mission. Right. These things will happen. Right. And what, what is happening here in, in the world, um, we see a lot of turmoil. We see a lot of difficulty. We see nations toppling. We see a, a Christian civilization, uh, not a Christian civilization. We see a civilization that has rejected the Christian faith crumbling before our eyes. What does that sound like? That sounds like God shaking things in heaven and earth so that the things that can't be shaken will remain. Mm-hmm. If that's... if. When, when people ask me, what do you think is next on the prophecy calendar? More shaking. I say this. <laughs> We've got a, a shaking going on so that the things that can't be shaken will remain. Yeah, and I think it, it becomes very clear. So, so, for example, I have a my cousin. She came to me and she was like, I think that I'm post-mill. <laughs> and I was like, really? She's like, yeah, I just was reading through the Psalms. <laughs> she said, I came to Psalm 22 and it talks about jesus and it talks about his resurrection it talks about how they beat him and stoned him and you keep going down and it you come to verse 27 and it says all the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the lord and all the families of the nations shall worship before you yep for the kingdom is the lord's and he rules over the nations and that's the same thing that goes back with um what we're talking about with psalm 110 um how does Psalm 122 start? You want to, or Psalm, just Psalm 22. If you read Psalm 22:1, what does that say there? It says, "My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning?" So, "My God, my God, why have you forsaken me?" That sounds awfully familiar, right? Yeah, Jesus quoted that. <laughs> Jesus cries that out on the cross. And anybody he's he's again telling the people, "Go do your homework. Um, go read the whole psalm." My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They were supposed to know 
what was happening. By him crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was setting up all of the nations will stream to me. Yeah. All, of the na- all of the ends of the earth shall praise me. Yeah, out of that seemingly miserable situation comes all of the families of the earth turning to God. And lest somebody say, well, I believe that. You know, on the last day, every knee shall, shall, shall bow and, you know, everybody's going to be forced, you know. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's not what this is talking about. This is talking about a regenerative, willing, loving, spiritual salvation. Yeah. When it says... All a posterity shall serve him. It will be recounted of the Lord to the next generation. They shall come to declare his righteousness to a people who will be born. So this is not speaking of at the last day when you, when Jesus comes back and everybody's okay, no longer deniable. I'm going to bow down to him and then probably get sent to hell. This is talking about gospel, uh, gospel success. People who understand and love and are regenerate in history. That the, the blood of Christ flows down Calvary so that men can stream up to Zion. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the good news of the gospel. Right. Um, and that it, it goes to the ends of the earth. Um, all people, tribes, tongues, and nations uh, stream to Christ. Yep. Uh, so that, I think, is post-millennialism in a nutshell. And that's a tiny, tiny, minuscule little picture of a vast majority of the prophecies in the New Testament that are exceedingly optimistic yep. about the his, about history in the New Covenant. Yeah. But, Tim, let me ask you something. What about the New Testament? Hmm. Is there any optimistic text in the New Testament? Yes. <laughs> Where? All of them. <laughs> um, we've already alluded to to several of them. Um, Hebrew, Hebrews 12 is yep. one, one of my favorites. Um, the book of Philippians, which we read at the top of the mm-hmm. episode. Um, the Great Commission that Jesus gives. Yep. Um, All authority has been given to me. Therefore, go baptize the nations. Therefore, go. Um. On this rock, Jesus, when Jesus commissions Peter as the as an apostle, he says, "On this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it." Did Did Jesus mean what he was saying? Um, well, what What was he saying? That so, some people don't understand really what that entails. No, nothing. This church is going to win. We We win. Um, and what are gates? And it's going to. Uh, it's going to. Uh, 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 totally lost my train of thought. What are gates? How about you say it? <laughs> they are defensive mechanisms where you're defending from an offensive attack. So Jesus is saying, this is where I'm building my, my church. My church is going on the offense and no gates of any city are going to be able to stand up to what we have coming. Yeah. So the church is going on offense. Yep. And it's not stoppable. I mean, if that doesn't say Great Commission is going to succeed eventually... I don't know what does. Yep. Um, other passages, 1 Corinthians 15, mm-hmm. um, the, uh, the promise of a re- resurrection. I think there's a lot of Christians that don't know um, that we, we, we will be resurrected. 
a lot of people think, oh, we're, we go to, when we die, we go to heaven and we just kind of float on the clouds and stuff. But we're promised a resurrection, that we will be bodily resurrected, given a glorified, perfected body. Um, Psalm 15 then requotes uh, Psalm 1, or 1 Corinthians 15, requotes Psalm 110. Again. In, in all of that, promising Christ's victory over the world. Um, we're told First Peter often speaks of um, you have an exceedingly great reward even if you are persecuted for righteousness' sake. God is building a temple. You are precious stones that are being built up into a holy temple. Um, so God, God is building his church, building this new uh, Jerusalem, this new uh, pure Jerusalem. People like to talk about Revelation as being this uh, doom and gloom book. Um, but when you read it with this historically optimistic um, perspective, you see that through the judgment of God, blessing is being poured out upon the world. Um, and at the very crux of the book of Revelation is this. The, it, it, if, when you look, track the, the chiasm of Revelation, the very center of the book is Revelation chapter 12, verses 10 and 11. And it says, I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now has come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ for the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they loved not their lives unto death. That's the story of the Bible. That's the story of the church. Um, Christ came as the serpent crusher. He crushed the head casts him down and we win. Mm -hmm. We overcome what? By the blood of the lamb. The one, the, the pure and spotless lamb who was sacrificed for his people. Mm -hmm. um, and that, that dragon is killed. He, he slayed, he slayed the dragon. Um, and John describes the, the church in revelation. He says, I turned and looked and saw a number that nobody could possibly number. Yep. So that doesn't speak of a few million here and there during the yeah. world. That speaks of uh, quadrillions upon quadrillions yeah. when history is all said and done. Yeah. That there, there's so much there. Now, I will, I will say there are passages that when we read and say, oh, there will be persecution, there will be difficulty. Um, you know, when, when First Timothy talks about in the last days, there will be... Um, men will be lovers of themselves, greedy and fornicating and all, all this stuff. Um, yeah, there's difficulty. Um, but there's difficulty now and we're told to go conquer it. We're told to go, um, beat it. Um, the absence, we're, we're not, the optimistic view of history is not saying that there's never going to be any difficulty. In fact, we guarantee that there's going to be difficulty, but we guarantee that we don't lose. And when you look at toppling strongholds, who, uh, when, when, you, when you topple a stronghold, um, who are the people that generally survive the fiercest battles? It's the, the fiercest warriors. They're the last ones to retreat. So as we tear down stronghold to stronghold to stronghold, we should expect the battle to get more vicious as we gain more victory. So it's not, it's not contradictory to be optimistic and yet say, we have difficulty ahead of us because the closer, the more you corner that wild animal, 
that <laughs> that rabid dog that you know the you corner a, a lion a tiger um the more cornered and the more threatened it feels the more aggressive it's going to be so a, as we go forth in this world proclaiming the good news of the gospel um, we can expect opposition to be more nasty all the time and yet we're told and promised that it will fall like the rest of it some things fall very easily they come up we go that's dumb get out of here uh you know you're you're a weak enemy um you get slashed down the the more uh difficult enemies rise up and they fight more viciously and so we have to be ready um, to fight a more vicious battle but we always know that we don't lose Hmm. So I wanted to ask you two questions. Yeah. And then I know we were going to end talking about the person of Jesus. Yeah. As our, really our, our cornerstone of why we're so optimistic. Yep. But here's my first question. Are you stupid? <laughs> That's debatable. <laughs> are, no, are, are you optimistic because scripture teaches it or are you just naive? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I don't know. I, I think we've, we've well established through this that um, there, there's clear gospel victory in the world, um, and, and it's not even close. Um, the, the passages that talk about um, triumph and victory and joy and rejoicing and feasting in the kingdom of the Messiah um, far outnumber the passages that talk about difficulty and suffering and oppression and even the ones that talk about the difficulty always promise um victory out of it so so right like in that timothy passage yeah he says people are going to be this way but everybody always stops because the next thing he says is but just like janice and jambri in the days of moses they will make no further progress for the lord will judge them yeah never nobody ever nobody ever bothers to read that part exactly (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so, no, I don't think it's naive. To, I, and I, I would actually say, um, at the risk of offending some people, um, I think it's it's actually more naive to just take a passage that says that things will be difficult and look around at, at our world and go, oh, things are difficult. Things said they were going to be difficult. Let, let's, um, this is how it's supposed to be. Oh, well. Um, it's more naive to think that... Um, things are getting getting worse um and and so i think uh, to to look at life through this gospel victory um gives us hope and gives us joy and reason to go back to battle hmm. and um we're not here we don't ru- wrestle against flesh and blood overall uh, who did christ come to save he came to save humanity. He came to save mankind. So we're not wrestling against flesh and blood because we want to and believe that humanity will be redeemed. And so uh, if I look at the, the, the big names of the secular um, agendas, I want them to come to a knowledge of the Lord. I want them to submit to Christ's lordship um, because in their, in their coming, um, the promises that God made to Christ are fulfilled. Um, and I want to see the en- the real enemy toppled. Um, I'm not out here trying to be a revolutionary. I want to see people 
revived. I want to see people given new life through Christ. Um, that that's what I want to see. Um, so, and and there's only one way that that happens, and that's by us being Christ-centered, gospel-loving believers in the world, in the world, not of the world. Um, and we're we're a tea bag. We are seeping the tea into this world. Ah, I love that thoroughly. Um, and it's going to be the strongest tea we've ever had um, mm. when we're all said and done. Yeah. I like that teabag one. But I uh, I just love that we're in the world, not of the world. What that doesn't mean is that we're not for the world. Right. The, the Lord came to unite heaven and earth. Yeah. He didn't come to escape us. Pagan Pagan eschatology is escapist. Mm-hmm. He didn't come to take us away from this bad, dirty, evil world. He came to connect heaven and earth through that ladder, which is Jesus Christ. On day, I think it was day two when Christ, when God created the firmament, when he created the firmament, the separation between heaven and earth, that was the only thing that he created when he said it wasn't, he didn't say it was good. The separation between heaven and earth, he never called it good. And Jesus came to break through that firmament, unite heaven and earth, so that one day, like Jeremiah 31 says, there will be no need to look to your neighbor and say, know the Lord, for all will know the Lord. The law will be written on their hearts. Yeah. At one point, that will be a reality where we can say on the earth that God's will is being done on the earth as it is in heaven. Yep. We're bringing heaven here. Yep. So second question. Last days, hmm. we've glossed over it a couple times. Yeah, uh, what do you take last days to mean? Uh, well, you kind of have to ask. Um, what's your What's your frame of reference? Last Last days, according to what? Mm-hmm. Um, most people, when they hear the term "last days," they think end of the ages, end of the world. Well, you know, this is, this is the end of everything. Uh, most often, though, when we look in Scripture and see what what the Bible is talking about when it speaks of last days. Mo- and I say most often because it's not every time. Um, most often it's, it's referring to the end of the old covenant. Hmm. Um, the, the, the bringing of the end um, of the old way of doing things. Um, and when, when we look and see uh, Christ coming and his, his coming to the earth, he starts talking about the end of the, the end of the age and those, the, the tension of those who want to hold on to the old way um, is where the the conflict really arose in that first century with between Christians and the Jews um, is that they wanted to hold that the Jews the Judaizers wanted to hold on to the old way of doing things and they got very vicious and very nasty about it um, and in doing so forsook all of the spiritual blessings that were tied to the old covenant. Um, and the, the New Testament believers were starting to see the blessings being transferred, that those who were trusting in Christ rather than the symbolism and the law um, were being freed from those things. Um, now, there are times where it refers to the last days as the, the end of the ages. Um, but The end of the cosmos rather the, than the, the end, end of the of cosmos. The, and so from this perspective, um, we're not expecting um, a new covenant we're, we are in the last days, absolutely, because... We're in the last epoch. The, the last aeon, yeah. Um, because we're not expecting new scripture. The only thing we're expecting 
is Christ's return um, to, to consummate the world, to, to, to bring an end uh, to everything, to, to make all things new. Um, he's making all things new right now. He His is. final coming will be the consummation. Yeah, like the, 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 the cherry on top. We're, we're the, the, the milkshake has already been made. We're putting the whipped cream on it, and we're <laughs> waiting for Christ to put the cherry on top. Yeah, that, 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 that's what we're waiting for. So when we talk about last days, we're not talking about, um, oh, well, the world could end any day. Um, but we are talking about this is the last phase. The, 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 the pregame has happened. The, um, the first act, the first two acts have happened. We're in the final act where all the, all the stories get resolved. Yeah. All of the um, victory happens. Um, you saw all of this wickedness building and building and building through all of history till Christ comes. The most wicked act that ever happened was to kill the Son of God. Yeah. And now we turn around and the killing of the Son of God has become our crown and glory. Mm-hmm. That we go into the world saying, yes, he died, but he rose again. And now we have life in his name. It's beautiful and glorious. Like, there, this is the last day. I'm glad to be alive in this time. Right. So when the apostles came and said, when will be the end of the world? Some people translate it. I guess some translations translate it. They use the Greek word aeon. Right. Which means age. Right. They didn't use the Greek word cosmos, which means like literally literally the, the world. world. Yeah. So what you're saying is that we can we can say we're in the last aeon. The new covenant is the last covenant. It's the perfect covenant. It's right. the last phase of history. Yeah. But that doesn't mean there's only two weeks left on the calendar. Right. We actually believe we're in the early church yeah. still. So so we can we can both say we're in the last days. Yeah. But we're not in the last days. Yeah. We're not at the last day. Right. Um and that that's the essential of um post-millennialism um and we'll probably get into this in another episode uh down the line um but the the idea is that the only prophetic event that we're waiting on is the return of christ we're not waiting for a uh, a tribulation we're not waiting for a um you know an antichrist to to arrive we're waiting for a resurrection of the the um the wicked and the just um and a great white throne judgment um, where Christ delivers up the kingdom to the Father, which is what 1 Corinthians 5 teaches us. Right. Um, and ultimately what I think is important about this is that it, it, crea- it makes um, the death of Christ, the death and resurrection of Christ, the most important event in history. Right. So I think as we kind of wrap it up here, um, that's that's where we have to focus. We're not looking for um, this, like I said, a tribulation, a, an antichrist, a rapture, all that stuff, um, because that that puts um, the second coming of Christ prior to a millennium. Um, it puts um, that as the pinnacle event of history, right? Which, in, in my understanding of Scripture, the, through the study that I've done, um, kind of degrades what um, what Christ has done. Um, in his first advent. In, in his first advent. So I will say I am premillennial in the sense that I believe that the Messiah came to inaugurate his kingdom, which is the millennium. And so we live in that kingdom because he came to die, to, to redeem this, to s- establish his kingdom forever. Um, what do you mean? What do you mean by that? Can you explain that more? What do you mean? When you say I am premillennial in a certain way. 
so the 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 general reference of millennium um, a, a premillennial believes that Christ will return prior to a kingdom and will set up an earthly kingdom um, and, and rule and reign on earth um, a, an, an amillennial which would mean no millennium believes that um, the kingdom is in the hearts of um, God's people and there's no earthly manifestation of it by being a post-millennialist I really don't like that term yeah. <laughs> um, but it's it, what I, what my perspective is is that Christ did come to bring his kingdom he came bodily in the flesh to establish his kingdom and he sent his followers 12 disciples actually 11 disciples um, into the world and thousands were added daily and it's multiplied to billions now um, that this is the kingdom it's on earth we can see it we, we, we drive past church buildings and see it we hear uh, congregations sing we have um, books upon books being written by Christians we have the Bible in our own language um, given to us so Christ brought his kingdom to earth and we are the ambassadors of that kingdom and by the the life transforming power of the gospel of his death burial and resurrection and ascension um, we bring his kingdom to earth which is what our lord taught us to pray when uh when uh we we pray the lord's prayer we ask thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven and jesus went before he ascends says all authority has been given to me therefore go make disciples he's saying the kingdom is here go get them go do it um and that's what he says in the Gospel of Mark multiple times. Says that he came to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. He's here. He brought it. It's near. It's at hand. He brought it. So premillennial, Christ did come, and his first coming was to bring the kingdom, to bring mm -hmm. the millennium uh, now. Uh, and so all we're waiting for is for him to come, like we've already said, the to come and resurrect the living and the dead. Um, after having put all his enemies under his feet, all of his enemies under his feet. Um, so as we close and you've already kind of started, uh, focusing on the person and work of Jesus, I think it's important to, to just not put our hope in circumstances, but to put our hope on Jesus. Our hope rests on a person, not on ethereal circumstances that may or may not be happening or happening around us. And that's important because, uh, as Peter Lightheart says, and I think he, he says it like very, very well, he says, God promised Abraham that he would bless the nations through Abraham's seed. And he backed up that promise with an oath in his own name. It's a promise to unify post-Babylon humanity under the blessing of Yahweh. To put it provocatively, God will not be God unless he unites divided peoples and races. He will not be God unless he gathers a people from every tribe and tongue and nation. The Father is determined to reconcile nations and races as one family in his Son by his Spirit. And he will do it once he's made up his mind. Who's going to stop him? Ain't nobody going to stop him. Nobody's going to stop him. That's I, I trust in Jesus and his promises. The, circum the circumstances be what they may. Sure, they're bad, but that that's not where I'm putting my hope. Yep. And who can stop the Lord Almighty? No one. Nobody can thwart his will. And when he's established and said he's going to do something, we know it's going to come to pass. He says, don't fear. 
no weapon formed against you shall stand. And this is why Paul can write from jail and say, oh, things are going great, guys. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah, it is. So, well, we thank you guys for listening. We hope this got you excited. Jesus wins. I'm excited. We, we all agree. Jesus wins. Jesus wins. Um, but when we look at scripture and see that he's always been winning, and even today, um, it gives us great hope, great joy, despite difficulty, despite um, uh, nasty, nasty things going on in our world, we can say, Jesus wins. Hallelujah. Thank you for the, la- the Lamb of God that was slain, who takes away the sins of the world. Go forth. Preach the gospel to all nations. Because all authority has been given to him. Because when God promises, he makes good on his promises. Amen. Catch you guys next time. See ya.